Welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Mark Boucher, I'm the library director here. And we have now arrived at the final uh, scholar series lecture for the academic year related to this year's Canvas Reef. Uh, but prior to introducing our featured speaker, I want to ask everyone to please turn off the noises on your devices that will be ringing and beeping and doing those kinds of things. Um, also, know that we have coffee, tea, and hot chocolate in the back. Um, enjoy, just stand up and get it for yourselves. Uh, we also have two more events coming up yet this semester, uh, sponsored specifically by the library. Uh, the next one is uh, the first Tuesday of April. Uh, every first Tuesday of the month, we hold the Palm in the Hand memoir writing series, and that's free and open to the public. Uh, we, we work on writing one-page memoirs and sharing them with each other. And the, the final real big event of the academic year is TEDx. LSSU. Hopefully you'll start seeing posters all around, promo materials, and that will be right here in the library April 5th, which is a Friday at 7 p.m. There's also a sign-up sheet for those of you getting um, some credit for being here. So the sign-up sheet is in the back. It's being held up right now, so if you want to sign your name there and get some bonus points for that, feel free to do so. So now, uh, it is really my honor to uh, introduce our featured speaker for this afternoon's uh, talk, our own Dr. Russ Seawright. Uh, he is a professor of psychology. He's been here for 11 years. He received his bachelor's degree from Butler, his master's in psychology from St. Louis University, his PhD in clinical psychology, St. Louis University. And then he ended up going back to school because he didn't have enough education uh, to get a master's degree in public health from St. Louis School of Public Health. And an interesting thing to know about Dr. Seawright is that he once ran 54 miles in 12 hours. But you didn't know that. So help me in welcoming Dr. Seawright. I'll just have to lie under them. Microphone. That's a green light. Wow. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. Um, if you look at the lecture series, you saw I was supposed to talk about the historical legacy of healthcare in the African American community. But I'm not talking about that. <clears throat> Why is that? Well, I attended the first talk, and I had already done an outline for my talk. And as I was sitting there listening to Dean Hutchins, I kept crossing items off. <laughs> so Tuskegee syphilis study, I guess can't do that one. Uh, Holmesburg prison, sorry, that one's out. J. Marion Sims. And so I looked at my list and I didn't have much left. So I was teaching a class <clears throat> called Medical Ethics in Film. 
in the honors program this past fall, and I read the book, Henry Lacks, about the fourth time, and watched the first time I'd seen the film. And I really was struck by Henrietta's older daughter, Elsie, and what happened to her. And I decided to do a little bit of research, and as is often the case with me, that research sort of got out of control and went in many directions. But how many of you have read the book? How many of you have seen the movie? Okay. For those of you who have done both, because I think it's portrayed in both, um, why was the family so suspicious of Johns Hopkins University? They were. It's a reputable place. Why was the family so suspicious of Johns Hopkins? Pardon? Night doctors. They did have a history of night doctors. Yeah. I think um, just the fact that they, when they went in, they didn't know that they were actually being listened to or uh, respected, or that they it was uh, for the medical care was what it was. Right. Right. And that Henry and his cells were taken without her permission. And if you go online today and put in HeLa, it will direct you to companies that still sell those cell cultures, and they're not cheap. Um, and they felt that they should have made some money off of it. Johns Hopkins did. Was Deborah in particular suspicious of Sloot? Why? Yeah. Because it might have been another um, opportunistic person who might be coming to uh, to take advantage of their their mother, their family, make money off of them, um, maybe not tell them everything that was going on. The uh, um, open trust just just was not there. Right, was not there. And actually that is probably one of the under themes of the book is how Sklut won over Deborah. Okay? So we often call extreme suspicion paranoia in my business. And paranoia is a delusion, meaning it's a symptom of a psychiatric problem. Were these folks delusional? <coughs> Friedman, how come? What they were afraid of was real. And yes. And it has happened, and it continues to happen. And that's going to be a lot of what we're going to talk about. That's going to be theme throughout what we're going to talk about. So I got interested in Elsie, and you may remember the scene to Crownsville State Hospital. What happened to Deborah right afterwards? Anybody remember? What happened to her? Was that when she had the breakdown? Yes. And did she go to somebody like me to be healed? <laughs> Who healed her? Actually, somebody better than me. <laughs> I don't know about that, Russ. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to show you some photos of Crownsville. And I want to warn you at the outset, some of these are not very pleasant to look at. So Elsie was admitted to Crownsville when she was 10 years old. 
It was a segregated facility. It was all African Americans during the time she was there. She died after being there for five years. It's really hard to find out what was really wrong with her. Um, some people say seizure disorder. That's probably pretty, pretty accurate. Maybe cerebral palsy, maybe death. I've seen autism. Um, and what Deborah had said was Henrietta just couldn't control her anymore. Well, Crownsville, like many places, unfortunately, also did research on its patients, even its child patients, without their consent. And this is what Crownsville was like. And it, they did research, you were more likely to die there than to be discharged. At its peak, it had nearly 3,000 patients and this is from a journalist in the late 40s, early 50s. They had eight physicians, one nurse, and one, and this, this is the journalist's words, low caliber attendant per 230 patients. And kids like Elsie were lumped together with people with schizophrenia, sex offenders, all sorts of people. There wasn't even, um, they didn't even organize the unit so that kids were kept separate from adults. It was a bad place. <clears throat> but they did have therapy, only it was called industrial therapy. Industrial therapy means you're working, but the benefits go to the hospital. Some places operated cleaners. Some places operated farms. And actually, this therapy actually funded some of these large asylums. And again, just to be, be clear, they called it therapy. The patients were not paid. Actually, Crownsville was built as therapy. On my left is the original Crownsville, and that are, those are early patients building <coughs> facility. Do they look like they're getting therapy? Not as I would know. That is probably the unit that Elsie, or one like it, that Elsie spent her last days in. Again, these places were crowded. And at this time in history, these were custodial, meaning that there was no requirement for them to provide you with treatment. That, did, that was not determined by the Supreme Court until 1972. These, you just lived there, and you moved in when you were admitted, and you were basically there for life. <coughs> Elsie got to go undergo something called a pneumoencephalography. This was actually a precursor to today's MRIs or CT scans. They were, they were looking for ways to visualize the brain. And one of the things that got in the way of visualizing the brain was that nasty cerebral spinal fluid surrounding. So what they did was they would cut an incision, remove the person's cerebral spinal fluid, replace it, pump air, helium, into that cavity, and then it got worse. You were often rotated in a chair like that so they could get better images. We don't know how many people died from this procedure. We're pretty sure that Elsie underwent that procedure, and it's mentioned in her autopsy. 
this is kind of an aside, just to let you know that this practice was kind of common. If you were at the Fernald School in Massachusetts in the 1940s, it was predominantly for kids with this, uh, developmental disabilities, you could have been one of those lucky boys who was in the science club. What did you get in the science club? You got more outings and stuff like that. You also got better breakfast. You got oatmeal. Apparently that was better. But you got a special kind of oatmeal. It was laced with radioactive material because they wanted to study what happened to radioactivity over time with these kids. The parents were told, your lucky child is a member of the science club. Here's all the neat things they get to do. The radioactive part was kind of omitted. And actually, the five people at Quaker Oats donated the cereal. So maybe we should boycott it. All right. This is a famous picture. Anybody know what that's of? Um, that is the infamous J. Marion Sims, the father of gynecology, the person who gave us the speculum and the stirrups. Um, much of his research on gynecology and gynecological procedures was worked out on slave women that he purchased. Um, he would actually induce something called a fistula, which is pretty painful, in these women, and induce up to 25 or 30 fistulas in these women and sew them up because he was working on his surgical technique. And it was believed at that time that African Americans didn't experience pain, so they didn't give any anesthesia. Well, at the same time, he was doing his <coughs> surgeries. There's another guy, Samuel Cartwright, who was a physician in that area, in the South. And he wrote this book that got a great deal of notoriety. And he developed new diagnoses that were applied to slaves. The most famous one is drapetomania. This meant that slaves wanted to be free. And that was considered a mental health problem. If you wanted your freedom, if you wanted to run away. That was a mental health problem. And there was even a treatment. Not exactly talk therapy. He also came up with another one. Dysesthenia aphopica. Said some of those slaves, he used them to are rascals. They get back at their masters by destroying their equipment, and they sort of don't work, and they talk back. They've got a mental health problem. We've got a treatment. This is real, by the way. Um, so what happened? Well, it's interesting. When, the, when um, emancipation occurred and the slaves were freed, many of what they called alienists at that time, that's the whole term for psychiatrists, said that emancipation is going to make these folks worse. They led, led this idyllic life in the rural South with their caring master providing all for them. Oh, this is going to create great stress for them. And whether I don't think that was the case, um, but actually the rates of mental illness among African Americans started to rise. Um, in the 1850s, some states did have these large asylums. Uh, incidentally, just so everybody knows what I'm talking about, probably the best example. Um, uh, are anybody from Traverse City or around there? Anybody visited the fine facility there? 
Wonderful. It's a great place. I don't mean that sarcastically, although I probably look at it differently. I'm not into the restaurant so much. I'm nosing around to find the graveyard. Um, but that is one of the examples of what those facilities were like. Okay. Um, that actually was out in the country when it was originally built. So these state asylums became much more common. Again, they were just custodial. There wasn't much treatment. And you stayed there till you died. These are grave markers of former patients. And so they continued to grow, and they got very, very crowded until the 1970s. Anybody from this part of the state? Hang on in. Um, your grandparents. That was a psychiatric hospital. At various times, they called it the hospital for the criminally And there, people in my abnormal class, or normal side class, know that I love to show these postcards. These are postcards on the left. People, these were tourist attractions during the early 1900s. I, you know, I always wondered if people sent these to their relatives saying, wish you were here. <laughs> um, that was actually, women got to be held in the, quote, lunatic cell. That is, that is from my What was the average patient like in the heyday, the 30s, 40s, 50s, of Ionia. That is from uh, medical records. What is her illness? How many of you have got dishes piled up in your sink and a few dust bunnies on the floor? We've got a place for you. I, I won't ask how many of you remain in bed until noon. Um, and that, her occupation was a housewife. What happened was she was in a store with her husband. She got a little disorganized in her thinking. Um, she started screaming in the store that I'm a bad mother, I need a bad mother, it's terrible. Um, the store, the guy who ran the store got concerned, called the police for disturbing the peace, and she was hospitalized. And my students also know that I love these psychiatric drug ads that appear in psychiatric journals. You see how those, that, that mop, how that room kind of look like cells, jail bar cells? That's the point. These are real, by the way. And the way that we knew you were well was you joyfully vacuumed those floors. You joyfully broke out the SOS pads and scraped that burn on food, and you smiled the whole time and loved it. So, in the 60s and 70s, psychiatry really expanded. They felt they could apply their knowledge to everything. And so, one of the things that occurred is that they attributed the civil rights movement, not all of them, but a few. Um, looked at the riots, looked at poverty in the African-American community, and basically said, this is due to psychiatric problems. It's not due to history of discrimination. Some of you may have heard of this. This used to be, we take this apart in sociology literature. Uh, that is, uh, he, before he died, he had a pretty illustrious career. 
Moynihan was a senior senator from New York State. There he is. With, he was actually the lone token liberal in Nixon's administration. He was asked to write a report, do an investigation, about poverty in the African-American community. And here's what he concluded. The pathology is in the family structure. Um, if we change the family structure, this antisocial behavior would go away. And his, if any of you grew up in a single parent family, Moynihan said that was a problem. That was a pathological family structure. That's what he blamed poverty on, the female-headed household. Race riots. In Detroit, in the mid-1960s, there was a major race riot. About 45 people were killed. Um, there was a neurologist and a psychiatrist who uh, published in Journal American Medical Association, and I put their quotation up there, basically said, yeah, lack of education, lack of good jobs, poor housing, I guess that could be a problem. But let's not forget the brain dysfunction that exists in those riders. And what was a treatment of choice? Psychosurgery or planting electrodes in your brain? That's what they proposed. Let's go back to Ionia. Now, the patient population changes. It's now African-American males. Most common diagnosis for them was paranoid schizophrenia. And the symptom picture of schizophrenia among their patients changed. And you start seeing terms like paranoid and angry. And incidentally, just kind of a sidebar here, because I know some of the folks don't immerse themselves in this like I do in my nerdy way. Um, here's what schizophrenia is. You have to have hallucinations, usually hearing voices, delusions, false beliefs, usually paranoia. Um, your thinking is very disorganized, and it's persistent. And basically, once you have it, it really doesn't go away. A couple other things about it. I stand up in my normal psych class, and I'll do it again this year, waving my fingers. It's 1% everywhere in the world. It's 1% in Kenya. It's 1% in New York City. It's 1% in Denmark. Well, it was higher at Ionia. Uh, this is a condition that you cannot develop. You can have the worst childhood in the world, but unless you have a strong genetic predisposition, you won't develop this. And there's really been no evidence that there's differences between ethnicity. Back to Ionia. So in the US, schizophrenia is up to three times more likely to be diagnosed among African-Americans, particularly African-American men. And it's not just the United States. If you look at Britain, um, people of African descent in Britain are either from Africa or they're from the Caribbean. They're more likely to be diagnosed with it there. And I put that more as a sidebar. On the downside, if you really do have this condition, you're less likely to get the best treatment if you're African. So here are descriptions from medical records at Ionia 
in the 70s. These are African-American men. For no apparent reason, states that white men are against me, including police officers. Tough guy attitude supports black power. For a number of psychiatrists to believe that if you were supportive of the civil rights movement, that was evidence of illness, and frankly, your involvement in the civil rights movement probably made you more confused. I love this last one. Must have been a psychoanalyst. His identification with the black Muslim group is a projection of his feelings of inadequacy. Real stuff. Um, this chart basically is just to show you the lighter bars are people who are white with schizophrenia. The black bars are people who are African American. Notice the symptoms that seem to be very, very strongly reported by the staff. Suspicion, belligerent, issues with authority figures, hostile. Far less likely, and again, the dark green bars are people of African American background. Um, and the lighter ones are whites. Less likely to be cooperative withdrawn, certainly not depressed. Now, during the same time, in the 1970s, this view that African-American men were more likely to have schizophrenia really sort of infiltrated the psychiatric community. This is a pharmaceutical ad from this same period. African art all of a sudden started to emerge in ads for antipsychotic drugs. Primitive psychiatry. And here comes my favorite. This is not after. And I've, I've shown this in my class. One of these I'll talk That is a real ad for Haldol, antipsychotic. And I don't like to read, but I'm going to read the uh, one person's description of this ad. The James Brown like figure, shaking his fist at the assumed physician viewer, takes place with an orange burning urban setting that appears to directly reference civil unrest in cities such as Los Angeles, Detroit, and Newark. So if you were angry, we had a treatment for you. Aldol. I think James Brown, best his soul, would be offended. I think he would sound much better than that, too. Um, Godfather's soul would not like the comparison. Okay, so what about today? Well, today one of the most common conditions that is diagnosed is attention deficit hyperactivity disorders, diagnosed in children. Okay? People generally familiar with what this is. Okay, you have two types of symptoms. You're inattentive, or you're hyperactive, and you're impulsive. Okay? And you have to have, I'll go back a minute, you have to have six of those until you get to 17, then five will do the trick. And they've got to be persistently present for about six, for six months at least, okay? There's been a lot of, and there continues to be, a lot of controversy about this diagnosis. Um, this was a great study. This was looking at African-American kids and white kids, and they've got three types of information. They asked the parents to, to Report. How many of those symptoms, how many of those behaviors does your child show? 
Then they got, they found out how many of these children, it's a huge sample, had been formally diagnosed by a doctor with ADHD. And then how many were taking medication for ADHD? Um, the parents of African-American kids and the parents of white kids both reported about the same level of disturbed behavior. However, uh, African-American kids were far less likely to have been formally diagnosed and far less likely to um, obtain treatment. Why would that be? Some of it, I think you could point to healthcare disparities and access to care. That's probably not all of it. Um, compared with whites, African-American parents were a lot more concerned about medication and, and side effects and get, these doctors are going to get my kid hooked on amphetamines. Um, and having practiced and diagnosed kids and referred kids for medication for many, many years, this condition, um, that's my experience as well. Uh, this is kind of a lengthy quotation, but I think it gets it across. This is from an African-American mother. Because everything that drug is supposed to do for him and doesn't do, yeah, it calms him down. Calms him down to the point he's not himself. I mean, calm him down, but don't destroy the person's character. Yeah, he's a little wild at times, but the average boy is. That's just being a boy. It even says in the Bible, foolishness, yes, foolishness, is tied up in the heart of the boy. And I can tell you from my own practice experience, I will sometimes say, when a kid is brought in initially, I haven't met them before for evaluation, and who refers most of these kids? By the way? The parents. Teachers. School. Oh. And so the parent, a parent will come in with their child, say the school says he has this condition, um, here's what they're saying. And I might say something like, you know, I understand the school's perspective on this, and the school's saying that he's hyper and may have ADHD. So what do you call what's going on with your son? And I often will get the response, it's just being a boy. And boys are three to five times more likely to be diagnosed with this. Here's another one. This is again from an African-American parent. In our society, they've already got a negative view on boys, period. Boys are bad. Boys are this. Boys are that. But to be an African-American boy, that's twice as hard. So if you don't sit perfectly in that class, you consider, oh, he's got a problem. Needs to be tested for ADHD. You destroyed him before he becomes an adult. And this is one of my, also one of my two favorite studies. Everybody, I bet you all are familiar with it, even though you may not know my name. How many of you students had to take standardized state tests in high school? Probably to get out of the place. Okay. Um, have we always had that? No. I think you can thank Mr. Bush. What's interesting is they looked at diagnoses of ADHD and prescriptions for stimulant medication. And what they found was the states did not all implement the standardized testing at the same time. It was gradually phased in. They found that within two to four years after phasing it in, 
the rate of diagnosis of ADHD went up, the amount of kids prescribed medication went up. States that had not phased it in, did not, like California, did not show this jump. And it was particularly true for low-income kids. And it actually wasn't even a psychologist who did the study, it was an economist. Okay, I am actually gonna finish. I know our students don't believe that. Uh, but I actually am. Uh, so we have some time for discussion. This is a real case. Um, I've practiced in hospitals for many, many years. And one of the things I routinely got asked to do was when patients were refusing treatment, and particularly when they were refusing treatment for something that was life-threatening, um, you have the right to do that if you're confident. Okay? Uh, this is a real case. And what I want you to think about is when you're involved in cases like this, people may not know, the people you're talking to may not be able to cite all the specifics of the Tuskegee syphilis study and talk about the whistleblower and all that kind of stuff. Um, they may not know J. Marion Sims by name in his, uh, quote, research on slaves. Um, and they may not know some of the things I've talked about. But they're aware of this narrative, not with specific names, not with specifics, but they're aware of, wasn't there a study where guys got syphilis and they didn't treat them? Uh, weren't there studies where they gave people, African-American kids, medication and didn't tell the parents? Wasn't there something like that? Um, so what I'd like you to think about is, and I need to think about it, is that there's oftentimes a sort of backdrop of that, those feelings, that narrative, when you're working with people of African-American background. This was a guy who had gangrene. Um, he was refusing surgery, but he was very confused. And so the question comes, should we do the surgery anyway, okay? even if he can't consent to it? So I did what you're supposed to do. I went and talked to the family. And they said, basically, look, um, we'll do what we think his wishes are, but we don't know what his wishes are. So it didn't help me much. Um, they said, you know, he wasn't having any problems thinking until he came into the hospital and he was kind of, he was kind of angry about being here. And those doctors, they gave him some sleeping pills so he wasn't so disruptive. That's when the confusion started. So I went and talked to him. He said, let me keep my leg. He couldn't tell me what year it was, what month it was. But he did say, those doctors just want to chop it off, get me out of here. Give my leg some time. The Lord can heal, you know. And the family said, those doctors and nurses made him confused. They gave him those pills so he wouldn't bother the nurses at night. You get the back story. Yeah, this is the back story. Now, I have a confession. I was practicing for many, many years. This is a college. And I went to a respectable university, took respectable graduate classes, and took ethics. We were never told about the Tuskegee syphilis study. We were never told this history. We were supposed to be progressive and sensitive to diversity. I only learned about it when I did go back for another degree in public health. That's when I first learned about it. And I was really sort of embarrassed and ashamed of myself that I was practicing often with people of color now, I didn't know this. I could have known this. 
All right. So, what do you do when you think this may be an issue? And I'm not necessarily, not necessarily in nursing, not necessarily in medicine. Um, and it's not something you're probably going to bring up all the time. But any time you're in a quote position of authority with people of color, this undercurrent's present. What's the best thing to do when there's an elephant in the room? Speak about it. Pardon me? Speak about it. Like yes, it. call it out. Get it out. Call it out. And while you probably wouldn't do that with brief encounters that you might have with students or patients, if you're going to have work with somebody over time, you do do that. And certainly, I was trained when I did psychotherapy that when I was working with people who were different than I was, I would raise it about 25 minutes in, the first time I met them. How do you feel about working with somebody who's, who's white? Um, is that going to be a problem? And I'm not being critical. And uh, what's interesting is they would typically say, the fact that you raised it means <laughs> it's not going to be a problem. And, and, and what I would say after that, incidentally to any of the women here, I would say the same thing in working with women. Um, you're female and male. Um, uh, is it uncomfortable for you working with a male? Would you rather work with a female? And um, we talk about that. And usually even 15-year-olds would say, 15-year-old girls would say by the end, yeah, I guess you're not too bad. Uh, I guess you're okay. Um, I have one young woman uh, who was gay, um, she's a 15, started our encounter by telling me how psychologists had oppressed uh, gays and lesbians over many years. And she was really quite articulate. And I said, you're entirely correct. You are entirely correct. You have every reason not to trust me. Every reason not to trust me. And I said, not only did we do what you said, here's some other bad things we did. Okay? <laughs> Uh, so, I think it's important to recognize its legitimacy when you can, and for, also, do not personalize it. It's this history that they're responding to when they're suspicious. It's not your personal life. You may not have done anything, and you may say, what, do I, what did I do? Nothing. There's this legacy, there's this history, it gets clicked on as soon as, they, as soon as people of color deal with whites who are in authority positions, okay? And it's justified. All righty, I am stopping. Do you have any questions or comments? Yes, sir. So when did they start shutting down those state mental hospitals? 19, it's, it's interesting, 1972 to 1974. Um, poor Mr. Boucher, walking to me the election. The antipsychotic drugs that made, that worked pretty well were available by about 1956. Um, many people believe that what happened in shutting down state hospitals was a way for states to save money. What they did in deinstitutionalization, saying this is humane, we won't keep these people in these custodial situations anymore, um, was basically they transferred the cost of their care to federal programs. Everybody gets disability, SSI, and you got Medicaid. Okay. So the states were not funding it any longer. Um, the other thing was, as I mentioned, in 1972, the Supreme Court said, hey, 
If you're holding these people, particularly committing them against your, their will, you've got to provide treatment. Oh man, that cost. <laughs> Move along. Um, and that's why you will, um, again, my normal psychiatric students hate hearing this again. Largest psychiatric facility today in the United States is Cook County Jail. That's where those folks went. And I love telling our criminal justice students, hey, guess what you get to do? Well, I don't like that suck stuff. <coughs> guess what you get to do? You get to see more of these people than I ever will. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm a lieutenant commander. I mean, there's this public health system. I've got a lot of appointments and stuff. But I'm a master of social work from Washington University. It's a healthcare administration. And we've just deployed to Katrina. I lost six officers were shot to death there. They were like, we're these sociopath blacks and stuff. We're shooting the officers. And I would bring good attention to them. And we went, I said, it's probably because of the ski. <laughs> we probably want to. When yeah. we show up at the public health uniform, we probably got the most. Um, probably more Kenya than her. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly distrusted. Yeah. yeah. And then when I worked in Kenmos, I was, I was contracting down there and I was naive to work for the AWAS and said, well, now you use our groups as a social path and such, right? He's showing addicts for each other here. He dropped a huge manual in front of me out of 5,500 prisoners, 4,895 of them were signed up for the group who were on call. Last thing I'll say is I work in relation with psychiatric buildings, CMS, and computers. They make up about five percent of the medical providers and fifty percent of the lawsuits. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you. Any other comments, questions? Well, thank you all for your attention. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Pete.